0: with the emergence of corporate, the whole game has changed. I mean, with corporates coming in and buying practices, veterinarians are becoming multi-millionaires.
1: From the Texas Veterinary Medical Association in Austin, Texas, this is Veterinary Vitals, a show that features open and honest conversations with veterinary professionals. I'm your host, Dina Goldstein, Media Coordinator for TVMA. Corporate-owned veterinary practices have been popping up over the past three decades, and many have approached smaller practice owners with an offer to buy their clinics. They put a price on it. But is the price fair? What is the clinic truly worth? Perhaps they say $5 million. Why wouldn't you say yes to $5 million? Well, our guest today, Dr. Randy Karsh, a licensed real estate agent, financial broker, and practice consultant, shares how he helped a practice owner sell their clinic for nearly twice as much. But before he became a consultant, realtor, and practice owner, he was solely an associate veterinarian. He graduated from vet school in 1980, fell in love with the beautiful forests in Washington State, and worked at a couple clinics there. He then bought a few practices of his own. He was content. So how did he go from being a practice owner to a consultant who helps veterinarians make millions? Here he is. In
0: 1994, I was practicing, and two men walked through the door. And they said, we want to buy your clinic. And I said, oh, fabulous. I had a dream like this. (laughs) And they said, yeah, we're, we're willing to pay... X dollars, and we'll give you one-third in cash and two-thirds in stock. And I said, you know, texting me, my mom didn't raise a fool. No, mm-hmm. thank you. Yeah. And so four years later, in 1998, I'm a clinical doctor. Yeah. Uh, I'm doing everything that I, I'm talking to the people about. And my office manager comes through and says, there's too many who want to talk to you. I said, okay, fine, put them in an exam room and so i walk in and i recognize the people and they say we'd like to make you an offer and i was very quiet and then they gave a substantial number and i said well that's a fair price and they said yeah you will pay it out over 10 years and i just said guys this isn't a win-win so i'm really not interested and as the person's walking out he says what would you take in cash and i said 92% of your number. I'll give you an 8% cash just down. I never thought I would see those people. Yeah. 45 minutes later, my office manager comes back to me and says, those men are back. And I said, make them wait. Mm. (laughs) So about 45 minutes after they came, I walked into the exam room. And this was March 4th. And they handed me an envelope with a check, and the check wasn't good, and it was for that amount, all in cash. And I was like, wow. And they said, yeah, we're going to make this happen, and, and we're closing on March 31st. Well, it wasn't planned, and it was kind of – I didn't think it was going to happen because why would it happen? It didn't happen before, so it did happen. And I called my wife, and I said, I, we just sold the clinic. And her answer was, how the hell can you do that without talking to me? Mm. I, I thought that was a good answer.
1: Yeah.
0: And then I said, well, they paid us this amount. And she goes, sold. <laughs> so this is, this is the true as it gets. So I sold the clinic. And when you sell a clinic, it, it's not your clinic anymore you're giving up the right of ownership, and you're also giving up the right, in my case, of decision making and things like that. So I did things like, because I was always interested in the business side of veterinary medicine. I had consultants in practice, I had some of the leading consultants, and I, ha- I just love to learn. And so I kept asking why questions, like, why are you letting my staff go? When my staff built this business, well, they wanted people that were loyal to the new corporation. Mm. They didn't want my staff, my staff was loyal to me. And then I'd ask, why are we changing products? Why, you know, just a bunch of why questions. They weren't mean, they were just, I wanted to know. Well, that relationship lasted six weeks. Uh That was it, They, they can't, one of my friends who worked for the corporation came to me and said, Randy, we don't think this is going to work. And I said, I appreciate that. And I really appreciate what you've done for my family. And he goes, okay. So I left the corporation and I literally had no idea what I was going to do. No, I wasn't intended to sell it. So why would I make plans to, to do that? And so the person who sold my clinic, a broker, he, uh, he said, you have one of the top three clinics I've sold. And veterinarians live on islands. We all go to meetings and everything, you talk to something, everything's always good. Oh, we're doing fine, we're doing good. But no one ever really talks about the numbers and they really don't talk about their headaches. They just everything's going good. So when he told me that I had one of the top three practices that he sold, I was, I was taken aback. I had no idea. So he asked me to come work for him. And what I did was I did turnaround. I went into doctors with health problems. I had a client that had a heart attack. I had a client that had prostate cancer, a client that had breast cancer, a client that had fibromyalgia, a client that had severe um, mental health problems and I got into their practices, and I turned them around so they could be sold, and I found that extremely gratifying. Mm-hmm. I was, that's just such a great feeling. You can help somebody, and they have a health problem, or they have a family problem, and you can go in there, and in a, in a short period of time, you can understand their practices, and you can get them ready for sale. You can sell it. They get their money, and they can, their life changes. And that's just a very strong feeling that really appeals to something within me. And in 2002, I decided to move back to Texas because my parents were getting older and my brother and my sister weren't in the same state and I just wanted to be there for them. And I'm really glad I did. Mm -hmm. And when I got to, got back to Texas, I started knocking on doors and I had clients that hired me as a consultant. And I did that while I'm still doing that. And then about four years into being a consultant, my clients started asking me to sell their practices. So one of the characteristics about Randy Karsh is Randy Karsh is a life learner. I love to learn. I'm always trying to take classes. I'm always trying to understand things. I push myself. Because one of my sayings that I use with my children is that you will always trade money for knowledge. Because if I give you money, you're gonna spend it. But if I give you knowledge, you can use it to make more money and you can use it to enhance your life. Mm -hmm. So I am a life learner. And I started selling practices about 14 years ago. It's the main part of my business about five years ago. I still consult. Um, my main niche is that I go in and I get practices ready for sale. And I did a lot of things. Um, my best friend and I started fair fees, which later morphed into profit solver for Zoetis. I was president of a national consulting firm and we had a hundred clinics that we consulted for, and that was a lot of fun. And I enjoy helping veterinarians. I understand the business models.
1: So it seems like you're kind of a natural with business and negotiation. Um, I thought it was interesting what you said about your mom who was like, you know, she didn't raise me, a, a, you know, to be a fool. What, what what exactly did she tell you? It's just interesting to know that like you just kind of knew what your clinic was worth and, um, and, what, and what you were worth. Can you tell me a little bit about your thoughts
0: on that? Well, when the clinic valuation came in from the corporate the first time and they offered me the high stock option, I have a child with special needs and he's doing fabulous. But at that time he was very young and I couldn't take the risk on betting on someone else, a corporation stock that isn't traded on, on NASDAQ or Dow Jones. So I could never cash it in. I could only go to that company to get money, and they, can, they could reset the price, and then I, I would lose two-thirds of the money. And Just because I needed the money, that didn't make it work out. Now, I need to tell you, in all honesty, when, when that deal didn't come through, I went home and I cried because I thought for sure I missed the opportunity of my life. And at that moment, I made the decision that I'm going to learn everything I can about the business side. And I just, I took a lot of classes. I went to um, every convention I went to. I went to like four conventions in like 18 months and I always took the management track. I heard people like Cynthia Wichit. I heard Mike Rieger, Dr. Michael Rieger, who I hired as a consultant. I hired, the doctor in Tennessee who always wrote, Dr. Ron Whitford as a consultant. I just wanted to learn. I wanted to do better. We're not taught in veterinary medicine in college at this moment how to understand the business side of veterinary medicine. So sometimes it's blind luck, but more than not, it's those who prepare are successful. And it really made a big difference in me by taking all those classes and reading a lot. Because as a veterinarian, I wanted, communication with the staff was always a challenge. I have a PhD in animal science. I'm hiring people who finished high school. And so there was frustration on how to get my ideas through to the staff by vision. and I really had communication scenarios with them. Because if you tell me or you tell another veterinarian, do something, we figure it out. But that's not true for the world. Mm
1: -hmm. And
0: so one of the things that I put most of my associates in and some of my owners whose communications uh, are challenged with the staff, I'm a big believer in Dale Carnegie classes.
1: Perhaps you've heard of the book How to Win Friends and Influence People. Dale Carnegie is the author. It was published in 1936 and remains popular today. He also is the developer of courses in self-improvement, salesmanship, corporate training, public speaking, and interpersonal skills.
0: They really assist in communication, Mm -hmm. and it really made a big difference in, in my staff. I I didn't have turnover. I knew I was looking for mature people. I wanted people to stay. I wanted us to have a, a goal of helping people and their pets.
1: So tell me specifically how you help veterinarians, you know, practice owners with buying and selling their clinics.
0: In buying a clinic, what you're doing is you're buying a cash flow. You're buying what this clinic can produce. And now, out of that amount of money, you have to pay your debt service. You have to pay yourself. And you have to have profit to reinvest in equipment and reinvest in in remodeling and updating your practice. So what I do is I look at a lot of of reports. Uh, If you use AvaMark, it's going to be your period totals, your transaction summaries. What are you not doing? You know, there's a saying that veterinarians give away a tremendous amount of money. And veterinarians, I think, feel guilty for charging, for charging fees. And when I did fair fees, it, it showed the number of what you're supposed to charge. And I would show it to doctors, and doctors would say, oh, I can't charge that to my clients. Some would say that. And I would say, why? That, that's what it's costing you, and that's giving you a profit. Oh no my clients my clients won't pay that and and from that I would have to turn that around to say what would you believe you have to do to get your clients to pay this fee rather than they're not going to pay the fee because it really does come down to client services and so I would look at all the reports I would work on on the flow of the practice the main thing is most practice can Practices can go up 15% if they stop giving things away, yeah. if they just charge for what they do. But a lot of older doctors are what I call the lumpers. They'll do a surgery like a tumor removal, and in the tumor removal, it'll include the anesthesia. It'll include the patient monitoring. It'll include the surgical pack. It'll include the surgery, the hospitalization, the injection. And then it's one price. But if you optimize those, it's 15 20% higher. But they felt comfortable with that price. So as a buyer's agent, I look at practices and I see trends and maybe they're not doing enough in new clients. Maybe their website's not good. Maybe their pricing is off. Maybe the services that they're giving are, can be improved. When I'm a seller's agent, it, it comes down to getting reports and making sure that the buyer's CPA can understand those reports. And that involves uh, three years of taxes, three years of profit and loss statement, three years of um, reports such as period totals, new clients, transitions, uh, transaction summaries, and things like that. And it built a picture of the clinic, of what they're gonna do And so a lot of doctors want to buy, want to sell potential. Oh, this clinic can do a million five. Well, it's only doing a million dollars now. Oh yeah, but if we increase the prices and I were to work an extra day, then yeah, we we would be at a million five. Well, that's not a true statement because you're not at a million five. You're Mm -hmm. at a million dollars and that's what you're selling. And so... With the, with the emergence of corporate, the whole game has changed. I mean, with corporates coming in and buying practices, veterinarians are becoming multi-millionaires. Never before in our history has veterinary practices sold at such a high level. Yeah. And that's great for being an owner, but if you're a buyer trying to buy a clinic that's a multi-doctor clinic, uh, that's going to be very difficult for you. Because the multiples, if you're using a bank, a bank is going to loan probably on 90% of last year's tax values. And if you're a corporation, they're going to pay double that. And that's why so many clinics are going corporate at this moment. I believe why we're seeing so many corporations, there's 61 corporations registered in the state of Texas to buy veterinary clinics. Let's talk about the profit margins in a veterinary clinic. As a private client, you should return between 12 to 18% of your total gross in profit. And profit is defined after paying your, you as a doctor, after paying a management fee, after paying all expenses. Well, where else can you get that kind of return, especially in today's market? You can't get a 12 to 18% return. There's, there's, that's not possible. So that's what started all the corporations buying. Because mm-hmm. you get a fabulous return on veterinary medicine.
1: Well, what do you think are some of the cons of selling clinics to corporations?
0: I'm not sure there, there's pros and cons. It really comes down to the person selling the practice and what they have to sell. There's multiple models out there for corporates to buy. There's everything from 100% cash, there are several corporations that do that. Most corporations are doing a mixture of cash and, and private equity stock. And the private equity stock is in their company. And where I think that veterinarians are naive is that a corporation is gonna do a tremendous amount of due diligence on you. Yet veterinarians don't do due diligence on the corporation. And I've always found that interesting. It's not selling to corporate, it's the fact that veterinarians don't get multiple offers from corporate. They just go on the one corporate that comes to them and talks to them and gets them to sign a non-disclosure agreement, and that non-disclosure agreement locks them up for a period of time. And during that time, as they get their information, let's say I have a clinic that's doing $2 million, and, I, and they offer me $3 million for this clinic. Well, the first thing is, the reality is a private buyer can't spend $3 million on a clinic doing $2 million. That's why would they do that? A bank's not gonna loan it. The, the owner of the business isn't going to do seller financing, so they're getting more money now, if that's 100% cash, that's a that's a great deal. But as I said, not all corporations do it that way. But the veterinarian who, who signs the NDA with a period of time where they can't talk to other clinics, other corporations, and then they put a $3 million offer in front of them, that veterinarian has no idea whether that's a low offer or a fair offer are ridiculously low offer.
1: So I wonder how much money you help veterinarians make, like that maybe they would have lost.
0: Oh, I've had veterinarians lose millions of dollars monthly. Monthly. I had a clinic where we went out and one of the things that I do a little different, I make a novel on the clinic. I write about the history of the clinic, and I write about the doctors. So, so it's a story. Yeah. So the person buying it has a real clear understanding. And my book's probably about 120 pages. And I, it's all electronic, so I can send it to them. And I also send a written copy because some people work better by reading it on a screen, and some people do better by having a book that they can write in. So I send the book out. My record is 11 days. Between sending the book out and having uh, well they want to do the letter of intent immediately so they can lock you up but my clients I won't do that they have to meet we have to agree on a price range not necessarily a price but a price range this is the lowest it's going to be what do we need to do to get it to the highest I mean on one deal we got offers from four this is a four-doctor practice. It's doing roughly four million dollars. We got offers between 5.6 million and nine million dollars wow. on one clinic. And the owner says to me, "He says, Randy, if it wasn't for you, I I would have taken that 5.6 million. Wow. Why wouldn't I take 5.6 million?
1: Yeah. How would
0: I know that it's worth nine million dollars?" I mean, brokers look at things different. When I go to a corporation, my clients are very organized because one of the problems corporations have when a veterinarian is is representing themselves, they can't get the information.
1: So tell me about the process of practice evaluation. Is that similar to appraisals? Like, how are those two different?
0: Um, They're really not. And the word valuation is really a misnomer. That's, that's a word that's been around for a long time. The the true correct word you know, and the legal word is yeah, an opinion of value. I, as a professional broker, with the experience that I have, and this is what we all say, we feel that in our opinion of value, it is this number or this range of numbers. So So they're the same. As, as evaluation, but the wording is, is different. And then an opinion of value is based on the valuator going through and coming, looking at all the, the information. I mean, reams of data, reams. When someone goes to sell to a corporation, I don't think they're aware of all the things that they have to provide to the corporation. And their CPA may not have their information, and this becomes especially tricky for the doctor who doesn't want to tell the staff that they're entertaining a sale. So they can't go to their office manager and say, I need all the staff reports, I need the W2s, I need um, uh, all my 1099s, I need to have a breakdown of how many specialists we have. We, what categories, what goes in this category? It's gonna raise suspicion. So some of my clients hired me to sell their practice because as a consultant, I could very easily get that that information.
1: So now that you have all this knowledge and experience, and I know that you did um, a fantastic job selling your practice to those two men, is there anything you would have changed now now that you know more? Or do you look back and you're like, okay, I'm really proud of myself for that first sale of my clinic?
0: Oh, I'm ecstatic for the first sale of my practice. Oh ecstatic. I never thought I was a clinical doctor. I bought land to I was in a leasehold space, and I bought land in a fabulous location that was going to have like twenty thousand cars a day pass it. And I thought my whole path was stacked. I, I I really had no intention of selling, and then this happened, and then it's this personality. If you do something, Do your best.
1: Yeah.
0: I mean, and if you make a mistake, say I made a mistake. I mean, I don't think clients expect people to be perfect. Uh, I I just think that you do your best and things are going to come up that you don't have knowledge on. That's when a person who has that integrity, they're going to go out and they're going to find those answers.
1: Yeah. So I just watched – the movie Founder, which is about um, the founding of McDonald's and how um, I believe it was Ray Ray Crockett, yeah, who just ran like t- took it and ran with it, and you know m- created all these franchises. And um, the thing that was a game changer for him was um, the land ownership and being like a, um, a realtor. And so I'm just curious when someone buys a clinic, they're also buying. land right like does that mean that they could actually like demolish a clinic and do something else with that land is that ever something that they do i I don't know just after seeing that movie it's something i thought about
0: so a veterinary clinic on a real on on land there's certain things that you have to do as a buyer to make sure you're not buying uh, a building where the air conditions going to go out and it's going to cost you fifteen thousand dollars you have to go through a series. Well, I recommend that you do inspections on the building. There's five different kinds of inspections that are necessary. To well, I define it because I'm a real estate broker is necessary. There are some deals where people don't do don't do any inspections. So if that's between two private parties and the person's worked in the building or the person doesn't ask for that, why would the seller pay more money to do something that's not requested. If you're selling the land, you have to have a survey. And most banks are gonna require a recent survey. You have to have title to that land. You have to have, because you can't get title insurance if you can't have a clean title. I mean, there's all these things that are different. What's happening is corporations don't wanna buy real estate. Because then that ties up their money in a long-term hold. And they would rather take that money and buy another clinic. They don't want to buy the real estate. So that makes the veterinarian the landlord. So now you're going to need a lease, and you're going to need that, that lease to conform to certain things. What is the landlord responsible for? What is the tenant responsible for? Who's paying the insurance? Who's paying the property taxes? What is the maintenance? Who is the... Um, I have clinics who the veterinarian doesn't want to fix anything. So we have a property manager. Is the corporation going to hire that property manager? Is the corporation going to do something with it? I mean, there's hundreds of questions in the sale of real estate.
1: So I think that your consulting services are very unique because you have the DVM background. Um, So what have your fellow veterinarians said to you? What kind of testimonials have they said? And I imagine they'd be like, oh, it's so nice that you're also a veterinarian. You know, you really understand.
0: Well, I'm very honored that I've had clients for a very long period of time. I'm honored that my clients become my friends because I talk to them so much. Mm -hmm. I mean, in my normal consulting, what I used to do is I'd see them every other week because there's a book called Changing behavior. Because if I've been doing something for a long period of time, it's very difficult for me to get and change behavior. Even I could show you all the positive things, but if those positive things don't create uh, a goal of what you wanna do and there's a pain, because you have gotta have the pain of pleasure theory. And most people don't wanna change. So consulting is really behavior modification because the veterinarian will tell me, oh, I'll go in and I'll say, your accounts receivable are too high. If 10% of your clients don't pay, you won't be able to pay your bills. Oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. I'm going to stop charging. And the next month, charges are the exact same. There's been no difference. Mm. So my consulting style is more that every other week because then I can get behavior changes. And then sometimes you just take it out of the veterinarian's hands. You make a new policy. So the veterinarian doesn't have to deal with it. Because everyone who's heard is listening to this podcast, I can say this with 100% assurity. Because we're veterinarians and we are compassionate people, we will give it away. Really the correct answer is when people ask you how much is that, say Mrs. Johnson, I I have no idea. Susan will be in here to go over prices and if there's anything you wanna do that you can't do or feel uncomfortable about doing, Susan will come and get me. Mm -hmm. And 99% of the time, the person says, oh, fine. Matter of fact, in the majority of time, not the majority, but in a percentage of time, it's less than what the person was thinking. Mm -hmm. But veterinarians who shoot from their hip kill themselves. What they lose, What a veterinarian gives away is probably 18% of their practice. So a million-dollar practice truly is probably losing $180,000. And of that $180,000, about $110 would go to the bottom line, and the 70 would pay your increased lab fees because if your your gross is going up, you're doing more services. You know your staff costs aren't going up, but you're just stopping it. The loss. I wish they taught us that in vet school, don't talk about money, talk about patient care.
1: And yeah, it's so interesting because so many veterinarians do become uh, businessmen and women and it just seems so vital to know that information.
0: Yeah, but they didn't get that information from just walking out and the sun hitting them. They probably worked in a practice where there were no financial information and they saw the stress of that and they wanted to change, so they started taking classes. Yeah. Or they hired consultants.
1: So what do you think is the most important takeaway for listeners? You know, the listeners are, you know, the veterinarians, practice owners. What What do you think is the most important takeaway?
0: Well, if I'm selling a corporate, I want to know what the what is expected out of me. And so I'd like to take a moment and just talk about process of selling to a corporate so first thing it's a law of supply and demand and right now there's less good clinics to purchase because corporations have been around since 94 so a lot of corporations have already bought clinics and there's less clinics to buy now and corporations they want to maximize an area so you could have a corporation that owns five clinics within a 15 radius. And what that allows them to do is move labor around. You can move your staff around. Oh, Susan's sick today, we're gonna to send over Kathy from another clinic. Or one of the doctors uh, works four days a week here and a day there and they bring over two doctors there. That's more efficiency. So corporations try to dominate an area. If you dominate an area, you dominate the, the fee structures. And in corporations, one of the things that I don't think the TVMA gets enough credit for and I really strongly believe this is we were deci- we were defined as an essential business and the TVMA had a lot to do with that uh, and Chris and Elizabeth and the team just did a fabulous job and because we were defined as an essential business and we have the law of supply and demand we are getting more investors to come into veterinary medicine than ever before. Investors that invested in dentistry, investors that invested in doc in the boxes, investors that were in optometry or in these uh, spa clinics. Well, with COVID, they got wiped out. I mean, it's going to take two years for dentistry to return. And veterinary medicine, this is the second golden age of veterinary medicine. I mean, veterinarians are are in, we're doing better than we've ever done. I mean, any veterinarian who wants to work can work. So in the law of supply and demand, you have these corporations that are out there trying to buy clinics because there's not that many clinics to buy, not as many clinics to buy. And so there's different models out there. There's 100% cash, but the majority of models are X percent of cash and Y percent of, of a stock. And the stock is in their company. It's not a publicly traded stock. And what these corporations are trying to do is they're trying to get their stock revalued or recapitalized. And when they revalue or recapitalize their stock, let's say that my stock was worth $20 a share when I bought it. Yeah, they, the corporation bought me out, and, and they, instead of paying me two million dollars in, in cash, they paid me a million five in cash, and I took five hundred thousand dollars at stock at twenty dollars a share. Well, the corporations are always buying clinics to increase their numbers, so they will get bought by someone else. That's the whole game. Now, not all corporations are going to be bought by by other companies, but that's usually their game because when you get up to certain numbers, the multiples get huge. So let's say the stock gets recapitalized after three years of ownership and it goes from $20 to $30. Well, that veterinarian just made 50% more on their stock option, but there's a downside to it. If the veterinarian didn't do the research and didn't get the prospectus, and doesn't understand the corporation, you don't know what the debt ratio is on that corporation. And then veterinarians can get hurt. And, and that's, just, that's sad, but it's very true. There's different kinds of stock options that veterinarians can get. There's a, there's a class A stock. And a class A stock means that after they, pay, they sell it, they pay their debt, the class A people get paid. Class A people get higher voting rights. Then you have Class B. Class B doesn't have higher voting rights. They have one share, one vote. Versus a Class A stock could have one share is equal to 10 votes. And then you have a Class C stock, which is called the common stock. And you get paid last. And veterinarians don't even ask those questions. And it's really sad. Dino, I got to tell you, uh, there's some sad stories of veterinarians investing in corporations and literally losing, losing their practices. And that's not all corporations at any means. There's some superb corporations out there. But if you don't do your due diligence, and a corporation, when it's sold, they have to pay their debt off first. That's the first thing that gets paid when you sell anything. You have to pay your debt. And then, they have the Class A equity. Well, they're the ones who are going to get paid because they're the investors. Veterinarians are down the line. They're not going to get paid till everyone else gets paid. And when you, if there's a bankruptcy, well, that's terrible, because if it's a Chapter 11, which is a reorganization, they're going to ask you to. Re, they're going to revalue the stock. And if it's a Chapter 7 bankruptcy, your stock is worthless. Absolutely worthless that's why, as a broker, to do, do, to do due diligence on these corporations is so incredibly important. Because I'm believing that that half million dollars is going to be a million dollars in seven years. That's why I took, went with this corporation. And that may be true and that may not be true
1: there's like this emotional component to it. A lot of practice owners, they see their clinic as their babies, especially if, you know, they started it from the ground up. But do you see that often where practice owners are a little emotional? Like, this is really hard for me to go through this process.
0: It, it's extremely hard. And it's even harder if they sell to a corporation who comes in and makes changes to their philosophy. Yeah. And one of the things that I discuss with with my clients is, what are they looking for? What kind of corporations? Are, because, because there's corporations, you don't change anything. They, they don't even change the name. The only difference is they get a paycheck and someone else assigns on it. I mean, there literally are those kind of corporations. There are other corporations who come in, install their own office manager, and make major changes to the practice. I mean when you talk about the emotional component, after I sold my practice, I couldn't drive by mm. my own clinic. I'd start crying because I missed my clients and I missed the daily of saving lives and helping people and and it was just very difficult yeah and having that personal experience, I can assist my clients in explaining that, when you sell it, you're truly selling it. It's like a car. You sell your car, and you may see your car, and you may have a thought, that it's not your car. Well, it's the same thing with your clinic. Once you sell it, it's not your clinic.
1: Yeah. Well, it sounds like you have that extra compassion and empathy because you've been through it, which I'm sure clients really appreciate.
0: I think they do. I think the main thing that I do is I take – I take away a lot of headaches from people because when you're selling to corporate, the amount of material that they're going to request from you is staggering. And I really believe the higher the price, the more material they're going to require from you because if you're not organized, you're going to get a low price. They may want your clinic, but they're going to give you a low price because you can't show them the worth of your practice.
1: Anything else you would like to share with our listeners before we wrap up?
0: Well, I hope that all our listeners are TVMA members because the TVMA and especially, you know, Texas, we're a large state. We're one of the largest numbers of veterinarians. We are a leader. Whenever we have meetings, the president of the AVMA comes to our meetings, our our regional meetings, and Texas leads. in my generation, there was no doubt that you would be a member of the TVMA. they just, you, you just knew you, you, that was something that was required. And I would love to see that again. I'd love to see our attendance be 90%. And that's, that's just important to me because the more people you have, the more learning that goes on. And I would love younger doctors to get involved because you want, my generation is leading now but you need to get the leaders in law. Veterinary medicine is changing. We've had some great leaders. I mean, Dr. Wall was a superb president. Presidents all the time are just, they're, they're good people. They're, they, they really want to help the profession. Mm-hmm. And so that's my TVMA spiel. And, my, and the spiel on getting your practice ready to sell is you have to be organized or you're going to get less money. And you shouldn't. I mean, this is what, Dina, you know, this drives me. Just, I just don't understand it. If I walked up to you and you had a truck and I said, I'm, I'm going to buy your truck. I'm going to give you the price that I want to pay for your truck. And I'm not going to allow you to get other bids on your truck. You would look at me and say, that's stupid. I'm going to advertise this and I'm going to get multiple bids and I'm going to take the best deal for me. So if you take out the word truck and you put in the word hospital, it's the exact same thing. Why would a veterinarian have one corporation tell them a price without them getting other corporations to give them competing bids?
1: Mm
0: -hmm. I'm talking about this clinic had a $3 million difference in pricing between corporations. $3 million. That's generational wealth. But once you sign the letter of intent or their are, there not, are there an NDA, it says you can't talk to anybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just, I don't know. I think that's the sad part.
1: Yeah. Well, it sounds like you have words of hope and a little bit of discouragement. But all in all, I mean, it seems like you have a very rewarding job right now.
0: Yeah, know, I feel really fortunate. I'm sitting here, I'm smiling. I love working with veterinarians. I think, I think we're good people. We have a heart of gold. We try our best and we're really smart. I mean, you go to a convention and veterinarians, because we're surrounded by all A-types and all people who made A's in, in school, we don't think we're special. But veterinarians are very special. I mean, we're we're some of the sharpest people, and most educated people in the world. I mean, look at human doctors—they can do one species. Big deal.
1: <laughs> ouch! <laughs> ouch!
0: Oh, that's a true statement.
1: Oh, I you know I think being a veterinarian would be so difficult. How trying to understand what an animal is experiencing? I so difficult.
0: Yeah. So now I feel real fortunate to be where I'm at. I'm real, I'm, I'm real upbeat on the profession. I've always been, I feel that we have great leadership and I, there's there's gonna be challenges. The challenges allow growth and that's me in a nutshell.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Karsh. Uh, I definitely learned a lot and it actually, it shows me how much I don't know. <laughs> so I really appreciate you coming on the show.
0: Great. Have a great day. Thank you for your time. I really do appreciate it.
1: That was Dr. Randy Karsh, a veterinarian, practice consultant, and licensed real estate agent, talking about how he helps practice owners determine the true value of their clinics, get them ready to sell, and make a meaningful, well-earned profit. Dr. Karsh is the president of Veterinary Sales and Consulting. You can probably tell that he truly enjoys helping his fellow veterinarians. If you'd like to work with him, visit vetsalesconsulting.com. I've provided the link to his website in the show notes. If you're enjoying this podcast, we would love to hear from you. Write a review on Apple Podcasts. We just received one. Here's some of what Stacy wrote. As an animal welfare advocate, I appreciate how the show sheds light on the larger forces shaping the veterinary medicine profession. If you'd like to get a shout out like Stacey, write a review today. Reviews let Apple know that listeners like you are enjoying the podcast. We can't thank you enough. And thank you again for listening. I'm your host, Dina Goldstein from TBMA.